0: Hello and welcome back to The Killer Kind. It's your host, Stephanie Miller, as always. This is my first solo episode of the year. Granted, it's only the second episode, but it feels like it's been forever. But shout out again to the Plainsman podcast guys for coming by last time to help out with the Aaron Hernandez case. Really enjoyed having them on. For that one, I love what they were able to bring to the episode. So if you haven't checked that one out, be sure to go give that a listen. But also while you're at it, be sure to follow their podcast. And even if you're not into sports talk podcasts, go give them a follow on Instagram or Facebook to show some love. But that said, I've got an interesting case for you guys today. This is one I saw on Dateline. I have no idea when I saw it, but it's been on my list ever since. And that episode is great. I highly recommend that you go check that one out if you can find it. I've had a hard time finding like the full episode, but hopefully if you have some sort of streaming service or something like that, you can find it. Today, we are going to be talking about a 21-year-old young woman who was gorgeous And she had a loving family that was pretty wealthy, but they always supported people despite their status or how much money was in their bank account. They were known as down to earth and humble. But today we learned that money can be a motive to kill. So let's just go ahead and dive into the murder of Kate Waring. Catherine Waring, or Kate, as she was known to her friends and family, was born on May 5th, 1981. She was the second born to her parents, Thomas and Janice Waring. She did end up being the middle child, her older brother Joseph, or Joe, I believe is what he went by, and her younger brother Richard. Kate grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, a picturesque, gorgeous city, one that I personally love too. And there's a lot of history there, good Southern hospitality as well, but also old Southern money. And the Warings were very much a part of that high society. They had been in Charleston for decades, Kate being the eighth or ninth generation living in Charleston back in 2009, where our story takes place today. The Warings lived in the Battery, which is a very wealthy area of Charleston. And despite their society status, though, Kate's former boyfriend said that Kate and her family were known to be humble. Like I mentioned, her dad, Tom was an attorney and was considered a champion for the underdogs. And Kate herself, from what I've heard about her, had a great personality and a golden heart. After she passed, there was an obituary shared online that said, Kate possessed a keen wit. She enjoyed a delicious sense of humor. She was naturally curious adept in languages and fond of traveling to exotic places. One of her favorite experiences was going with her father in August 2008 on a polar expedition to Spitsbergen, which was inside the Arctic Circle. She was also a gifted writer and poet. Kate loved all animals and little children, and just like her father, she was also a champion for the underdog. She was gorgeous inside and out, and was literally living the dream. She was able to travel all over the world. She was extremely smart and loved to learn new things. She also had a heart of gold with a passion for animals and a love for children. She often volunteered at animal shelters, and before she passed away, she was in the middle of writing a children's book. I mean, this girl could do it all. Now, despite her idyllic upbringing, there were a few demons that Kate battled growing up. She struggled with depression and an eating disorder at one point, and as she entered her teenage or high school years, she developed a pretty rebellious side as well. She started drinking and partying. However, it wasn't until after she went off to college that Kate shared with her family that she had been sexually assaulted by someone close to the family when she was younger, and that obviously devastated her family. So from then on, they wanted to do everything they could to help their daughter. She stayed in college for a couple more years, but continued drinking more and more and also experimenting with drugs. Her family put Kate in therapy after she revealed her childhood trauma, and that definitely seemed to help with her depression, but she was still struggling with the drugs and alcohol. And after she finished college, her parents told her to come home and live with them until she could get her life back on track. And that's what she did. In 2008, her dad, Tom, offered to take Kate on a father-daughter trip to wherever she wanted to go. The two were really close, and Tom knew his daughter needed a vacation. And this was that trip I mentioned earlier. She wanted to go to the Arctic Circle and see the polar bears. Again, fulfilling that passion for animals that she had. This trip ended up being a true awakening for Kate. Her dad said that he could see his daughter's mindset just change. He said at one point she was looking around at all these young families, men and women about her age with kids. And she turned to Tom and said, quote, I don't have to settle for things that i am settled for, do I? She just realized that she can live her life however she wants to. She can finally be happy. And don't vacations do that to us sometimes? <laughs> we realize how beautiful this world is and you end up with this desire to be different, to be better and go back home a better person. And that's basically what happened. While on this trip, she met a Russian crew member who worked on the cruise ship they stayed on, and the two hit it off. And when she got back home to Charleston, her family could see how happy she was. Her brother Joe said they had never seen his sister this happy. A few months later, Kate went to Moscow to visit this new guy that she had met. And while she was there, she really just fell in love with the country itself. And she had also planned to go back. She told her family she wanted to move to Moscow in the summer to take up Russian studies. And in May, she did try to go to Moscow. However, there was an issue with her visa when she got to the train station. And sadly, she was unable to go. Instead of stressing about it, though, she returned to Charleston and decided to re-enroll in college there to study Russian. Her parents fully supported this, her going back to school and starting this new chapter in her life. So now we're going to jump into the summer of 2009. June 13th, to be exact. Kate is still in the midst of this new journey, back in school, making plans for her future. But on Saturday, June 13th, it was a normal day, just like any other Tom and Janice were at the family's summer house just outside of the city, and everyone else in the family was just kind of out doing their own thing. Kate, however, was back at their home in downtown Charleston. And on that Saturday, Tom realized that he hadn't heard from Kate, which was unusual. So he decided to drive back into the city to check on her. There is no sign of his daughter. At the house, however, he noticed that the lights were on in her room and all of her belongings were still there, including some very important medication. Kate's mom told Dateline that she had never went anywhere without her medication. But when Kate still hadn't arrived home the following morning, her parents really started to worry. This was just so unlike their daughter to not at least let them know where she was and that she was okay. They spent most of the day Sunday reaching out to Kate's friends, calling hospitals even, and checking everywhere they could for their child. Now, I'll remind you that there was a period in her life that she was into drugs and alcohol, so her parents' initial fear was that maybe she had relapsed and something bad had happened, which is why they were checking hospitals, and rightfully so. But Kate was a 28-year-old adult at the time, so She was free to do what she needed, but her parents decided to give her until Monday, the 15th, before calling police. And sure enough, the rest of the weekend comes and goes, and there is still nothing from Kate. But on that Monday, Tom received a call from Kate's bank, alerting them that someone had tried to cash a check signed by Catherine Waring, the check was written on June 12th in the amount of $4,500 and was made out to a man by the name of Ethan Mack. The issue was that Kate only had $100 in her bank account, so the check couldn't be cashed, obviously. Luckily, red flags went off and the bank felt this was a little suspicious and alerted the family. But who was this Ethan guy? Tom said he had heard of a friend named Ethan, but Couldn't have told you his last name. Turned out that Ethan was one of Kate's actual best friends. Other friends of hers claimed that the two had a brother-sister type relationship, very platonic. She considered him her protector and someone who always had her back. So when the cops showed up at his door questioning him about the possible disappearance of his friend Kate, I'm sure he was shocked, and along with those that knew about their friendship as well. According to Ethan, though, this check was from Kate. She had supposedly explained to him that she wanted to pay him back for money he had given her to buy jewelry or things for herself in the past, and she just wanted to pay him back for it. He went on to say that he had dinner with Kate that Friday night, the 12th. He explained the two had dinner, but then he dropped her off at her parents' house between 11.30 and 11.45. Ethan did allow police to take a look around his home that he shared with his mother. He and his mom were more than cooperative and seemed eager to help in the search for Kate. They looked through Ethan's phone as well while they were there and were able to confirm through text messages exchanged between the two that he and Kate did have dinner that Friday night. And they did not find anything that contradicted his statement and police found nothing suspicious inside this guy's house. Although he was technically their only lead at the time, and despite being very cooperative with police, Ethan expressed his frustration to Kate's parents, specifically. He left a voicemail for the wearings after police searched his home, saying they needed to stop looking at him and really get out there and find who did this. And police did move on from Ethan. They searched Kate. Kate's phone records to try to track her down, and it looks like Kate had made a phone call late that Friday night. The phone pinged from a tower in a place called James Island, several miles from her house. However, investigators told the family that pings from certain cell towers can be tricky because they aren't always accurate indications of where the phone is. She could have still made the call from the house. At this point, her parents are starting to become frustrated with investigators, right? I mean, there's no new leads. They're kind of brushing off, you know, the the tower ping, and they're not really looking too hard at this Ethan guy, even though he's their only lead. And then now they're getting a voicemail from this guy too. Like, and not only that, Tom said that the police told him that his daughter is an adult, supposedly a world traveler with a history of drug abuse. So she could have easily just hopped on a plane back to Russia or be somewhere overdosed or committed suicide. They specifically said they don't know a crime has even been committed yet. And As a parent, I can only imagine they just sent them over the edge because they knew in their heart of hearts that something bad had happened. There was no reason whatsoever that Kate hadn't at least called them. There's just no reason for it. So they took matters into their own hands and tried to piece together a timeline from that Friday night, the 12th, the last time anyone had reported seeing her. Now, Kay had been dating this guy named Howard Gatch, so her parents went to him first, and he told them, but also told Dateline as well, that she had called him that Friday afternoon, that Friday morning, to see if she could get a ride to an appointment with her therapist because at the time, she did not have a driver's license. He said, of course, so he took her to her appointment and then later on that day, she went to the gym where he trained. Howard said Kate asked if she could work out for a little bit and then while she was there though, there was a small altercation that took place at the gym. Howard's soon-to-be ex-wife showed up and was pissed that Kate was there I couldn't find exactly what happened, but nothing really came of it. Because at 8 p.m. that night, Kate was seen on a pharmacy security camera getting her prescriptions refilled and buying some snacks. After that was when she went to dinner with Ethan, and he dropped her back off at home. Now, at some point earlier in the day, Kate had spoken to her dad. And this is sort of what troubled her parents most. Kate said that she had potentially gotten herself in some trouble. She never did go into detail with him about it, but seemed like she really wanted to like have a conversation. However, before she could, she was gone. A month or so goes by with no new leads and no sign of urgency from the Charleston Police Department. Janice and Tom were frustrated and just worried sick about their daughter. Then comes in a guy by the name of John Rivers. He was a childhood friend of Tom's, but also a pretty influential guy in Charleston. He reaches out to his friend, the police chief at the Charleston Police Department, and explained he was concerned about Kate Waring and urged them to work hard on this case for him. The police chief at the time said that he would assign one of his best guys to work on it, but to know that they are very busy. I mean, obviously a little annoying to hear, but the family was hopeful. Another month, though, does go by, and there is still nothing new in this case. So, this time, John reaches out to another friend and asks for the same favor. Former prosecutor, former defense attorney, Andy Savage. John tells him to do what it takes to find Kate, And that is when the case was kicked into overdrive. Andy Savage, though, was required to keep the police updated on his findings and what he found was crazy. So let's start with this. So when he first got started working on the case, he gathered a team of retired detectives turned private investigators. The dream team, really. First up, there is Bobby Minter, known as the Human Bloodhound. Bill Caps specializes in anything tech and cyberspace. Then there's James Randolph, known as the former police department rebel, and known for shaking things up in order to get some answers. All four of the men went straight to work. Andy said that the investigators on the case were claiming there was no sign of foul play. However, his team was able to clearly see signs of foul play almost instantly. Bill noticed that Kate was constantly sending messages, text messages, emails, making phone calls, all of, all of that, all throughout the day, every day. However, after the night of June the 12th, there was silence. Obviously a huge red flag. Then there was a series of voicemails and phone calls from Kate that Friday night. At 10.06 p.m., Kate calls her friend Jason Locke, who was a lawyer. She left a voicemail saying that someone had stolen her identity and had credit cards taken out in her name, and she wanted him to help her sue the person responsible. Then sometime shortly after midnight, Kate calls her boyfriend or the guy she's seeing, Howard Gatch, and she says that she was at a friend's house. He told Dateline that she sounded a little buzzed, but seemed to be okay. Then, A little while later, though, she texted him saying that she was going to Greenville to get some, quote, lovely, and would be back in a few days. He had no idea what lovely meant or what that was, but he just told her to be careful. Kate did not end up responding back to that text, but that was the last time anyone received anything from Kate. Although her phone pinged at James Island, like I mentioned earlier, it pinged at 1.53 a.m. Now, that sort of bothered Andy Savage and his team because the family was told that, like, oh, the tower close to their house and the battery was probably busy at that time. So the tower in James Island likely just picked that up. But Andy said, why would a phone tower be busy at 2 a.m.? That makes zero sense. Then there was another sign that Kate's phone was being used. Kate, or someone using her phone, called her voicemail from the phone. Her voicemail box normally stayed full and untouched. So when Andy and the guys saw this, they believed that it wasn't Kate at all, that somebody else was using her phone. But why? At the time, they didn't have an explanation. and Everything they kept finding still didn't really point to anyone in particular, and they were at a dead end. That wasn't until another retired homicide detective, Eugene or Gene Fraser, on James Island heard something pretty interesting. He had a conversation with a guy he went to church with about the Kate Waring case and said that they actually knew this Ethan Mack guy and how he wasn't telling the truth to the police. And you know Gene's ears like perked up. He said that. Ethan Mag actually lived at an apartment this guy had rented out to Ethan's dad. But Ethan had told the police that he was living with his mom on a different island miles away. So this guy felt that Ethan was trying to mislead the police. It was after this conversation that Eugene got involved with Andy, Bill, Bobby, and James. And together, these five guys really blew this case wide open. I'm going to call them the A-team because that's what they called them on Dateline. And that's what I've seen them referred to as. And they really are the A-team. They're awesome. But moving on. (laughs) Their focus clearly needed to be set on Ethan Mack. He has proven that he can't be trusted. Plus, he's the last known person to have seen Kate. And after looking a little closer at Ethan, they realize that Ethan has a live-in girlfriend named Heather Camp. And when the A-team took this information to Kate's parents, Janice said she recognized the name Heather Camp. She said that a few months back when Kate was coming back from her failed attempt to travel to Russia, she had been at the train station in Washington. And on the way back, she ran into this girl named Heather She had told Kate that her wallet had been stolen and she had no money, but that she was a pediatric surgeon starting a new job at a medical center in Charleston, so if Kate could help her out for now, she would easily be able to pay her back soon. Janice said that she met Heather when she was with Kate in her room one day. Kate introduced her to her mom and explained the situation, but that the two had become fast friends. However, a few days later, Kate came to her mom very upset, saying that Heather's daughter back home in New Jersey was tragically killed in a car accident. But when Janice heard this, she noticed that Heather didn't really seem like this grief-stricken mother. She wasn't in a hurry to get back home to be with her grieving family. It just didn't really sit right with Janice, and apparently she expressed this concern about Kate's new friend to Kate. But... Then Kate just denied that Heather was anything other than a good person and friend, and there was nothing to worry about. She even actually introduced Heather to her best friend, Ethan, and the two started dating. So after hearing all this from Janice, the A-team took a little closer look at Heather, and it didn't take long before they realized that Heather wasn't exactly who she said she was. The team said it took a pretty easy Google search to find out that this woman had been arrested for forgery in Indiana and other states, and she had recently been busted for impersonating a doctor. Not only that, she had been married before, since divorced, but had four children. So why was she living in Charleston without her kids, since she clearly wasn't a doctor? She seemed more like a con artist than anything else, and since she had been arrested for forgery, the A-Team felt that that $4,500 check Kate supposedly had signed and given to Ethan could have actually been forged by this Heather check. As I mentioned earlier, the A-Team was required to give their information to the Charleston police to keep them in the loop. However, when they took this bombshell of information to the Charleston police, they just explained it away, saying that the possibility of this forged check being connected to Kate's disappearance was zero. Like, they did not believe the two were connected. And they were still believing Ethan and his story. And once again, they proved to the family in the eighteen that they don't believe foul play was involved. She's a grown woman who probably just took off somewhere. And that just had to be the most frustrating thing to hear. But after that information was brushed off by police, the A-team knew they needed to continue their own investigation and keep the police out of it as much as possible because they clearly weren't going to help. Gene Fraser, the retired detective on James Island, went back to his church friend, though, and he asked for a small favor. He asked him if he would put a surveillance camera on the property he was renting out to Ethan and his dad. And speaking of that, let me explain that Ethan was living in a small apartment behind the home of this church friend of Eugene's. You've probably seen apartments like this. It's like one long single level that is divided into a few different apartments. So Eugene asked Ethan's landlord, essentially, if he would let them put a security camera on the back side of his house facing the front door of Ethan's apartment. And the surveillance didn't stop there. Bobby Minter, the human bloodhound, put a GPS tracker on Ethan's car, and he would also stake out where he worked, which was at a beachfront hotel in Charleston. And man, did they see some pretty suspicious stuff. So first off, the guy saw that Ethan would leave for work, and then Heather would meet up with the guy who rented the apartment next door. The two would go to the bank together a lot, oddly enough. So Bobby decided to reach out to somebody that had been investigating issues at this Wachovia bank that the two had been going to frequently. And they were able to determine that the two were kiting checks. I still don't quite understand what that means, but basically they were stealing money from the bank. So Bobby took this information to the bank themselves, but no charges were ever filed. Either way, though, here we have this Heather girl forging checks and stealing money. So the A-team needed to find out if Heather possibly forged that check that Ethan had tried to cash. So they go back to Ethan's landlord to help get handwriting samples for them to compare the handwriting on the check. But before that happened, the landlord told Eugene that he was about to have to evict Ethan and Heather because they weren't paying their rent, which would have been so bad because they were still in the middle of this surveillance and investigation and watching their every move. Well, they decide to reach out to the guy who started the whole thing. Tom's good friend, John Rivers, and he offers to pay their rent secretly, of course. After all, he was essentially the money behind the operation, so this would allow the couple to stay in the apartment. But in order to retrieve the handwriting samples, the team came up with the idea of the landlord asking for IOU notes, basically handwritten agreements explaining they would agree to make smaller payments. To their landlord so that they wouldn't be evicted. I hope you're still with me. I know this is a lot of information, but Heather and Ethan do what they need to do. Okay. They write these IOUs, and these handwritten notes were given to the A team by the landlord. And that team reached out to Mickey Dawson, who started the state's handwriting lab. Andy Savage said within that same day that they gave the samples to Mickey, he called them up and said there is no doubt that the handwriting matched the handwriting on the check. And that basically told them all they needed to know. If they were able to forge a check from Kate, one of their closest friends, then what else were they capable of? At this point, the team knew they needed to look inside that apartment, right? They're trying to figure out how to get inside. And there's a lot of suspicious behavior. And if Kate had been there, if they had done something to Kate, then surely there would be some sort of evidence inside the home. However, since they weren't active investigators, they couldn't get a search warrant. They had to get creative. And that they did. They realized that a landlord has a right to search their tenant's home for safety, welfare, whatever it may be. And he didn't have to have permission. So with the help of the landlord, the A-team advised a plan to have an exterminator come spray for bugs. And then Jason Randolph, a member of the team, was going to go along with the exterminator and look around the place. Now, what was crazy was at the time they decided to do this, the GPS tracker on Ethan's car showed he was gone. He was away from the house. However, when they opened the door to the apartment, James said that Ethan was sitting there on the couch smoking a joint. I'm sure they freaked out a little bit internally, but they kept their cool and explained there were exterminators there just to spray for bugs. And since they would be using dangerous chemicals, he needed to leave the home while they sprayed. And luckily, it worked. Ethan bought it. So he left. Inside the home, James found a backpack that contained Chinese money. Now, one thing I failed to mention earlier was that at the beginning of a story, when Kate went missing initially, and her dad came home to check the house, he checked her room, and there was no sign of Kate. She had her medication there, but also on her bed was some Chinese money. Now, James and the A-team searched the house. They did their own investigation there as well, and James pointed that out like in his head. He thought, why is there Chinese money here? But Janice explained that she had brought that back as a souvenir from her trip to Hong Kong and gave it to Kate. Okay. So why in the world is that Chinese currency now at the home of Ethan Mack? I mean, these two are friends, so maybe she shared that with him. But It just seemed a little suspicious. So the A-Team decided to stir things up a little bit. They decided to put missing persons posters everywhere that Ethan and Heather went. All over James Island, the hotel where Ethan worked, in and around their neighborhood, like literally everywhere. Andy Savage said that they even put one on his car windshield outside of his work. To send like a psychological message, but nothing ever really came from that, unfortunately. But that's when they decided that if money was a possible motive, why don't they use that against them? They went to the neighbor that Heather had been sneaking over to. His name was Terry Williams. The guy showed up to his door with a bag of money. I'm just gonna pause and say again I love these guys, (laughs) they are incredible. What I would give to work with them personally, just like watch them work. But anyways, they show up with this bag of money. Terry answers the door. They explain who they are and how they're investigating the disappearance of Kate Waring and how they believe his neighbors, Heather and Ethan, killed her. That all this money in this bag could be his if he tells them what he knows or helps them find out what happened. And it's about that time that a bedroom door opens up and the A-team sees Heather Camp walking out trying to put her clothes on. I'm sure the guys were like taken aback. But they said that she started screaming at them while dialing her phone to call Ethan. She says, quote, Ethan, these investigators are here trying to get Terry Williams to roll on us. And it was at that moment that the A-team knew the two had done it. They said that that statement just really sealed the deal for them. But if you've listened to the podcast long enough, if you're a true crime junkie like myself, then you know they need more physical evidence to hold up in court proving that they had something to do with Kate's possible death. And they didn't have to wait long, though, to get more out of Heather and Ethan. But before we get into that, around this time, the police still aren't doing much to help the Charleston police. They're still saying she ran off or something like that. There's no foul play here. Well, this just continued to fire up the wearings, right? Because they knew in their hearts that something bad had happened to their daughter, and they're not being taken seriously. And the more they looked into it, the more they realized Kate's disappearance was one of many missing persons in Charleston. And that just honestly proved that the Charleston police did not take cases like this seriously. So Janice Waring held a candlelight vigil for those missing persons in the area, had all their family and friends come out in support. She said in a news interview at the vigil that she felt having this memorial would likely reach someone that knows something, and they would feel moved enough to come forward with information. John Rivers, Andy Savage, and the rest of the A-team were all there to show their support. And it wasn't long after that vigil that Andy Savage received a phone call. A few phone calls, to be exact. One from Ethan Mack, all pissed that they came to his house, accusing him of murdering his best friend. And in the same day, they got a call from Heather. Basically saying the same thing, too. How dare you accuse me of doing something like this? You know, how dare you show up to my house? How dare you try to bribe somebody? But Andy said that he took that time to tug at Heather's heartstrings and says that as a mother, you must understand the heartache that Kate's mom feels not knowing where her daughter is and knowing that something bad had happened. Again, kind of playing that psychological mind game, right? but Heather and Ethan were not the only ones to call that day. Terry Williams also called, the neighbor they tried to bribe a little bit. <laughs> he called and said, look, I do believe that Heather and Ethan had something to do with that girl's disappearance. Heather gave me an iPod a few days after she disappeared, and I believe it belongs to Kate. The tech guy of the group, Bill Caps was able to get the iPod from Terry and he said it only took a few minutes to confirm that the iPod did in fact belong to Kate Waring. He said all he had to do was look up the serial number and see who it belonged to and sure enough, it was a match. Once again, the A-team gives everything they've got to the police. The handwriting samples, the iPod, and anything else that they know about Heather and Ethan. And Luckily, they didn't have to wait long for something to happen because Shortly after they handed over their new information, Heather Camp called the Charleston Police Department to confess to forging the check from Kate Waring to Ethan Mack. Not confessing to murder, but that's enough to at least charge Ethan and Heather and get them in custody. Ethan was arrested at the hotel he worked at, but what was crazy, and it shows you how little the Charleston police knew about the case the A-team had to tell them where to find Heather. The police obviously had no surveillance going on like the A-team did, so they literally had to tell the police where she worked in order for them to go get her. They were both charged with forgery and obstruction of justice. What was frustrating now, though, was that We know the A-team had to share all their findings with police. However, the Charleston police weren't required to share any of their investigation with these retired investigators. So they were kind of kept out of the loop while also trying to stay close to the investigation itself. But luckily, they still had some friends that worked at the police department that helped out a little bit. And someone told the A-team that Heather folded. She had told police where to find Kate's body. Search took place of Wadmala Island about 20 miles from Kate's home in the Battery. So, Bill Caps headed over to the island and pretty much staked out the area throughout the entire time of the police search. He just sort of sat back and watched. <laughs> but despite there being several people out there searching including cadaver dogs, there was no luck in finding Kate. So everyone was back to square one. Now, the A team knew they had to stay on top of Ethan and Heather. Luckily, Ethan and Heather had a bond hearing coming up, and A team were able to attend. Andy Savage said that when the two were there at the bond hearing, he noticed that Ethan Mack had a public defender, but not only a public defender. It was like the chief public defender. Along with his whole family, all there to support him. But Heather had no one, no attorney, and especially no family. So Andy said that he told Eugene and James to go down and see her. He said he wanted them to be very kind to her and see what they could get out of her. Now, these were the same guys that showed up with that bag of money at Terry Williams' house. So I'm sure when Heather walked in, And saw these two guys sitting there. She was stunned, right? And they basically just sat her down and explained that they needed some help. All they needed was the body. And she says that she had tested the Charleston police. She sent them to the wrong spot intentionally. She said they promised her a deal. But the second she told them where the body was, they were abusive and ultimately did her wrong. And she said, quote, they failed the test. So now what? Was she going to tell the A-team where Kate's body was? Well, oddly enough, during the conversation, the team turns around and sees Ethan Mack through the window. They were positioned in such a way that Heather could literally see Ethan sitting down with his attorney and a detective while she's sitting down with these investigators at the same time. The A-team said that it was just sheer luck that they sat down at the same time, basically. So James Randolph used that to his advantage. He was like, look, there's Ethan over there right now, probably riding you out. He said she literally starts waving her hands at Ethan, trying to get his attention, but he wouldn't look at her. So in that moment, she breaks down. But she's not dumb. She wants a deal, right? Something to help her out if she gives them what they want. And so the guys call up Andy and ask what can be done. And he promises to help her with her forgery charges if she can assure them that she was not involved in the actual murder. And sure enough, she takes the deal. So she gives them detailed directions to Kate's body. The A-team went back out to Wadmallow Island, where they had sat and watched the Charleston police search and at first, when the A-team went out, they had trouble finding Kate, too. They actually didn't have any luck at all in the first search. And they were, they were immediately frustrated with Heather. Andy called her up and wanted more information to see if she was telling the truth. And she told them that she knew what kind of jewelry Kate had been wearing that night and which pawn shop to go to to find it. Also, she explained that Ethan kept Kate's bulldog keychain that she had bought in Russia as a souvenir. And what's even more disturbing about this is that Kate had actually bought Ethan a matching bulldog keychain. Sort of like a matching friendship keychain. The guys went back to Ethan's house after this and they actually found that keychain. Plus, they found Kate's jewelry at the pawn shop she told them to go to. So, she was definitely involved and being somewhat truthful. So, they decided to trust her one more time and go back again to that same area. Now, after Andy Savage surveyed the area through Google Maps, he printed out a map for the guys. And they were able to realize that they just didn't really look in the right spot based off of Heather's directions. So, On October 10, 2009, in a wooded area off Polly Point Road in Wadmala Island, Kate Waring was finally found. Bobby Minter was first to spot a small trail. He said about six minutes into the search, he saw what looked like an animal path. So he followed that a little ways, and then he came across what looked like human bones. He said he just knew that it was Kate. He called the rest of the guys over and together they called 911. When Charleston police arrived on the scene, they were pretty skeptical of the guys. The team said they were detained, took them to the station for questioning, and just made them feel like criminals, even though they were the ones that kept this investigation going. They're the ones that found Kate. But it's another rant for another day. <laughs> Charleston police wanted the whole story of their investigation from start to finish. Not just the day they found the body, but every day they worked on the case. And the guys were confused at first because it's like, look, we gave you all the information every step of the way. Why are you giving us this hard time now? But luckily, after a few hours of conversation and each of the guys giving their statements, they were released. Once the crime scene was taken over by the Charleston police, the medical examiner was called to examine the body. And sadly, due to the state that the body was in, he was unable to determine a cause of death. And other than the body itself, there wasn't much physical evidence still tying Ethan or Heather to the murder. Yes, Heather helped find the body, but as we all know, as I've already mentioned, you need more than just circumstantial evidence to win the case. That said, though, Heather did plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter, obstruction of justice and forgery, in order to testify against Ethan in exchange for a reduced sentence. The trial for Ethan Mack took place in October 2010. The prosecution came up with the theory, pretty plausible theory, that Kate had found out that Heather was conning money out of her, And that she was trying to steal her identity. Because if you remember that text that Kate sent to her lawyer friend. The theory is that she found out about this on that Friday night. And likely confronted both Heather and Ethan at dinner that night. She threatened Heather saying that she was going to tell her dad. And she was probably like, look, you're going down for this. But Heather and Ethan knew they couldn't let that happen. So they decided the only way to stop her was to kill her. And that's the story that Heather went with too. But of course, she said it was all Ethan's idea, not hers. Heather testified against Ethan, claiming that after dinner that night, they all went back to Ethan's apartment. Which makes sense because she called her boyfriend at the time, Howard, saying that she was at a friend's house. So that adds up into that she was there willingly. But while at the apartment, Ethan supposedly dared Kate to try to fit in a large suitcase that he had. But as soon as she climbed in, he zipped her up, and then he tased her. She said that he hit her with a wine bottle two or three times, and then he had Heather go fill up the bathtub in their house, and he drowned Kate. A horrific story of a friend who tortured and killed his best friend. But Ethan's attorney asked the jurors, can you really trust a con artist? Come to find out, Heather had conned up to 13 men and women over the years, stealing money from them, taking out credit cards and their names, committing forgery, as we know, and being caught impersonating a doctor. So, how could anyone believe a well-known liar like Heather? Well, come to find out, the jurors couldn't. After a short deliberation, jurors found Ethan guilty on obstruction of justice and forgery, but couldn't determine if he tortured and killed his best friend, Kate. So, the judge had to declare a mistrial. Shockingly, though, Ethan's mom, Corrine MacDean, intervened. During the original trial, she testified on her son's behalf, and she even told Ethan's attorney while on the stand that if she knew anything about her son's involvement in the murder, she would turn him in. However, after she sat through the trial, she realized that there was more than her son was telling her. So after the mistrial was declared, she went to visit her son in jail, and the two got into a pretty loud argument over the case. And following that conversation, Ethan went before the judge and pleaded guilty of voluntary manslaughter, admitting guilt to the murder of Kate Waring. Ethan Mack was sentenced to 25 years in prison for voluntary manslaughter, forgery, and obstruction of justice. Now, Heather herself received 39 years for the same charges. But it was more because, if you remember, she took a plea deal as well. But she apparently violated part of her deal because she apparently lied to police about certain things after her plea. So because she violated her deal, she received an additional 14 years in prison. And there wasn't too much on Terry Williams, but I do know that he was also charged with obstruction of justice as well. So what are your thoughts on today's case? My brain is just spiraling. Here is a woman who was probably like friends with everybody, right? Like every walk of life, anybody that came into her life she was going to be nice to and she really had this friend that she was close to ethan and she introduces heather to her best friend and they hit it off and kate just probably thinks this is so great but then you got this psycho con artist liar who is manipulating ethan and look ethan did wrong he murdered kate if he loved kate like he claimed that he did he would have done this But the state attorney herself, who the prosecutor in the case, said that had it not been for Heather, this wouldn't have happened. And that's honestly just a fact. There is no way that this would have happened. Well, I wouldn't say no way, but it's very unlikely that this would have happened had Heather not come into the picture. And she knew what she was doing the day that she met Kate on the train, she knew that just by looking at Kate, that she probably had money, right? We all know what that looks like. And somebody like Heather, who had nothing, sees this woman and strikes up a friendship, and she she plays the role. I mean, a legit con artist. I mean, literally the definition of a con artist. So, as always, I want to know your thoughts on today's case. Head over to the podcast Instagram page to let me know your thoughts on today's post, or you can always DM me and let me know your thoughts there. And since it's the new year, I would love to know any case suggestions that you might want to hear this year on the podcast. I've got a couple still on my list for the year, but always let me know what are your favorites? What are ones that you want to hear me cover or ones that maybe you haven't heard covered anywhere else that you want to hear here? so let me know that anywhere you can and if you haven't done it in a while or if you're new here be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you're listening leave a five-star review or something like that wherever you can just kind of helps people find the podcast kind of helps spread the word so be sure to do that if you can that is going to do it for me this week guys i'll be back here in two weeks for a brand new episode until then stay safe bye guys